Hey folks, this is Rod dropping in here at the beginning of the episode before we get everything started to let you know this is a very special episode of the podcast that uh, came about because I wanted to sit down and talk with Tim and Donna Lucas about their fantastic magazine, Video Watchdog. It's been around for more than a quarter century and it's still going strong with 183 issues under its belt as well as a few special editions here and there. And uh, it is absolutely my favorite genre magazine. It is, if you've never seen it before, something to behold. And uh, as Donna will tell us in the first part of the podcast, there's a nice way you can check the magazine out now, and it's free. Kind of fascinating. But Video Watchdog is the perfectionist's guide to fantastic video. And for that reason alone, it will always have a special place in just about any genre fan's heart. Once you start reading the magazine, it becomes inevitable that you're going to try to read pretty much all of the issues. So, sit back, let Donna tell you how the magazine comes about, how you can get your hands on um, hmm, most, if not all, of the issues of Video Watchdog, and then uh, hang around for a little while longer after that, and you'll hear Tim and I have a brief, well, not so brief, discussion of Jess Franco and some of his films. Hope you enjoy. Bye now. This is Rod Barnett. I'm here today with a friend of mine. This is Donna Lucas. Hi, Rod. Let's see. What would we call you if we were referencing you in response to a, uh, a kind of resume? What are you? Well, Tim always says I am the heart and soul of Video Watchdog, but I am officially the publisher and art director of Video Watchdog magazine. How long has uh, the magazine been around? Since 1990, so we're in our 26th year. <laughs> wow. I actually <laughs> forgot that it would have been that long. Jeez. Oh, yes, it has. And we have seen a lot of changes coming from the beginning, but I'm really excited about our latest incarnation of our digital editions, which we'll get into later on today. Now, this doesn't mean that uh, you're ceasing publication on the print edition. You're just moving into the digital realm more fully. Absolutely, and it's a different animal. It's a great companion to the print edition, and it's a great way of people just to see who've never seen the magazine before what we can really do with the medium. So... I'm excited about it. And I guess all of this is accessed through the Video Watchdog website. Yes, or from your app on your iPhone, Android, Kindle device. Uh, I have it on my iPad. All right. <laughs> I like that. Well, the, uh, the, the question becomes, is there, uh, is there added content? Is there different content from each, from each issue? Or? Uh, there is added content. Sometimes we'll add extra pages to the digital because we can. And we'll add multimedia, video, audio, and slideshows to enhance the experience of Video Watchdog. But if people don't even know what Video Watchdog is, I think... You know, we should probably say something. That's about a good that. idea. Video Watchdog is uh, well. I'll be honest. It's if you've ever listened to me babble endlessly about uh, one aspect of a film or another, that part of my way of looking at movies and kind of enjoying them does stem a lot from my reading of Video Watchdog since 1990 something something. Yes. Whenever I started reading the magazine, and that's because it was uh, the first magazine that I read that was a bit more of a. 
an examination of film rather than just a celebration of the fact that the films existed. Not that Watchdog isn't there to celebrate the fact that these films exist and that we love them, but it took a critical eye and applied it to different aspects of all of these films with the idea that even if there isn't necessarily something there intentionally, there might be something there that's not intentional. Plus, just digging into the, that whole Watchdog aspect of trying to discern the best version of something on video, uh, the various cuts and edits of the film and thing, things like that. I didn't realize when I first started reading the magazine that it would become something that I folded naturally into my way of looking at movies. But Video Watchdog is something that I cannot imagine I couldn't, from 1995 forward, I haven't been able to imagine being without the magazine because it informs me. Uh, I, lo- I love the reviews, uh, uh, even though uh, there for a long time, I think Tim wrote the vast majority of the reviews, and now there's a, there's a whole team. Uh, I think that's a strength of the magazine because it gives a lot, a lot more voices and a lot more opinions about uh, different things. But also, it's the way of the magazine. It's the way the magazine has always chosen to dive into this stuff. And it is mostly genre stuff. We're talking fantasy, science fiction, horror. Although a lot of Eurocrime, spaghetti westerns, just whatever. I'm a big fan of the, the different columnists that have popped up in there. The, ver- the, the various review sections are always fun. I'm a big fan of the sometimes to return uh, tapes from the vault where something really obscure gets talked about. Like I say, unconsciously. I folded it into just the way I think about movies, which is something maybe I should talk to Tim about reimbursing my therapy bills about. <laughs> but <laughs> the aspect of uh, the magazine that I've always loved the most is not just the reviews, but the long-form articles, which is where you, where Tim or, or whoever's writing, because you guys have a, certainly have a huge stable of writers that contribute to the magazine, and, and the length that you're allowing them to go on for allows for a lot of really interesting discussion of a film. I remember uh, a few years ago when Tim instigated those very interesting roundtable discussions where several different writers would bat things back and forth about a particular movie. Mm -hmm. And that was always fun because anytime those ideas bounce around amongst people, it gets more and more interesting because one idea begats another and they grow. That's the thing about Video Watchdog that I think that if you've never read an issue, any particular issue that you pick up at random will give you a taste of what we're talking about. The magazine is still, to my mind, it's still it's still a unique product because although there are a lot of other magazines out there that have kind of uh, flowed in its wake, uh, none of them really do what Watchdog does. And I think a lot of that comes down to not just him, but to your way of looking at not just the layout of the magazine, which I know you're primarily responsible for, but uh, the the structuring of the content. And it's a, it's a magazine that maybe I'm just so used to the layout now, uh, it seems like any changes to it would be heretical. But then I look back, I look back at... Um, you know, the first 50 issues, and I go, oh my God, there have been so much, it's so different from the way it was, but it never seems that way to me, because it's all seemed of a piece, so uh, to me, Video Watchdog is kind of um, the best of the genre movie magazines that I read on a regular basis, and I read far too many of them, (laughs) so... That being said, when you guys first made the move into uh, taking the magazine online, it took me about a week to start panicking that, oh, no, that means the magazine's coming to an end. (laughs) And uh, even jokingly make the remark to Tim a couple of years ago, does does this mean I need to not renew my subscription? Should I stop sending you people money? No, no, no. 
I am. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry, that'll never happen. But I know that uh, you've been working on this this move into the digital realm for the magazine for a while, and I, of course, I've I've looked at it and I think it's wonderful. You've put up, you've put up. I think you put up one issue that people even who don't have subscriptions can actually take a look at. Every new issue is free. Oh. For a period of two months until the next new issue comes out. Now, see, that's fascinating. That's great to know because it doesn't require the subscription, right? doesn't require you get a free digital subscription basically by just going to the website and saying, click, I want this, and you've got it. You log in with a username you make up and a password, and that is yours forever. But I will let me just backtrack a little bit sure. here and tell you why we decided to go to the digital and why Video Watchdog, I think, is so important to us. When Tim started to write for other magazines way back in the 80s, or 70s actually, he wrote for Cinefantastique first, and we loved Cinefantastique. It was, oh, it was the glossiest magazine. It was my lodestar. I thought, oh, this is the best-looking magazine, the most beautiful one I've ever seen. And we got a chance to actually go to Fred Clark's house, see how he put it out from his home, and I thought, oh, my gosh, this is heaven to be able to work at home and do a magazine. Yeah. Little did I know, years later, when I learned the computer realm and desktop publishing, that I'd be able to actually do this out of my home with Tim. But in 1990, things were very precarious. Desktop publishing was just starting. And if you were starting out in business with mail order, oh, that's an untrustworthy kind of a place. People who send money to someplace, how do I know you're really going to deliver? So we had to sort of pretend that we were this big conglomerate as best we could, get in all the bookstores, you know, answer the phone, video watchdog, this is Donna, can I help you? You know, out of our own home phone and pretend we weren't at our own home. <laughs> and then we found that's kind of contra, you know, it doesn't work well. We want to connect with our readers. Right. We were always on the spot with customer service. We were always... talking to them for hours on the phone if they wanted to go off on rants or whatever. You know, we wanted to build this community, and the best way was to come clean and say, yeah, we work out of our home. It's just the two of us. And by then, we were in bookstores and everything. And then with the Internet coming, we were developing this relationship with our readers, which is unheard of in many respects. I mean, who can go to, you know, Time Magazine and say, hey, you know, I didn't get my issue last week. Can you resend me one? You know, or whatever. You just don't do that. You get some subscription service. But anyway, so this is a very homegrown thing. We always followed Tim's vision for Video Watchdog. Tim had an eclectic vision of all the movies he liked. He wanted to put out a magazine for the movie lover he knew existed out there. So it's all following his tastes, and he's got a wide variety of tastes. So he will accept any length of an article and want to run the whole thing because he remembers writing for other magazines and saying, nope has to only be a thousand words, only 1,500 words. And then, do you ever get paid? (laughs) That depends. (laughs) Well, we couldn't pay people either. And now we pay them very minimally. But we always pay them as soon as it's published. You know, it's because we remember how that felt when we couldn't. So it's all about drawing people into this community. So my layouts, 
the way we organize things, the way we do customer service, all is for the reader. We don't want to change our size. We're physically a kind of a handheld digest size magazine. And people say, well, if you go full size, you'll get better newsstand distribution. I said, I don't care. Our readers are collectors. They don't want to have their binders, their magazines and their binders this high and then go four inches higher and rebuy them all or something. They want them uniform. We know this. They True. want their issues in pristine condition. So when we send out the issues, we have cardboard mailers for first class subscribers or we have put them in envelopes, not just slap a label on them. You know, we never want a coupon somebody has to cut out of the magazine. Oh, my gosh, no. You know, so we understand. We understand the collector's mindset. So once bookstores started to close, the death of Tower magazines, my goodness, that was a big one. Uh, then so many mom-and-pop video stores were closing. Bookstores were going along with them mm-hmm. because so much content is available on the Internet. We knew that eventually we would have to have some sort of our content up on the internet. Yeah, the when Tower Records went away, a lot of magazines just kind of folded. They did. And so did the bookstores along, I mean, the video stores along with them. Yeah. Uh, very sad. More and more content was being sold on Amazon. People were buying their DVDs and their books from the internet, have it delivered to their door because the bookstores were no longer around. Now, there still are Barnes & Nobles. There are still some major chains. There are plenty of comic book stores still out there, and we are in those. But we knew that we wanted our magazine to live longer, even than the bookstores. And we wanted the convenience of being able to search through our entire archive of magazines, which now we're up to issue 184. Um and have people be able to t- search for a director and let them know where the articles are in the magazine. I've had so many people call and say, I know you did an article on so-and-so on Twin Peaks. Do you know what issue that was in? Oh, sure. That was in issue two and four and 16, you know. Or how about Blade Runner? You know, then you have to go look it up and find out so that they could order that issue. But with digital, easy to search, find the issue you want. So digital has its own uh, attributes, its own great things about it. Well, no, there's a great benefit, even if, and I, I, I think I think this is one of the best things about it, is that searchable database, because although I have the magazines, you're right, if I go, if I'm sitting down and thinking about something that I specifically want to locate, I can't remember what issue number it is, Yeah. but that re- being able to go online, punch it into a database, and having, having that information dropped in my lap, that's what I want. Exactly. When we did this huge book called Mario Bava, All the Colors of the Dark, yes, back in 2007, it was 1,128 pages, weighed 12 pounds, and <laughs> it was huge. All right. Everybody kept saying, I wish I could get this digitally because this thing is so heavy, <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. I can't, you know, you know, read it in bed, for instance, you know. So um, I was imagining all the stuff we could put into that book. We could put all those pictures that I had to fix up, uh, posters I had to take the creases out of, all the extra stills we weren't able to put into the book. I could add those digitally somehow in my mind, I'm thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, Perhaps put some trailers of Bava's commercials in there that he did as a 
filmmaker, young filmmaker, but PDFs just couldn't do it. PDFs are wonderful. They make it look exactly like the book you've got because we print from PDFs and people are used to that. They can download them, they can easily read them, but they are not copy protected. And if we get a PDF out there and we sell it to somebody, they could give it to 100 million people if they wanted. Yeah. And how is that going to help us continue to stay in business? As long as we're in business, we have to make a little money from it, but if we're gone, we're going to just release it all free to people. You know, we want it to live out there on the Internet. But please just let us live for a little while longer. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> so we were looking for a format that would allow us to copy protect kind of our magazine and add all this multimedia to it. And finally, I found it. And it's a company called Udo, And they... Uh, allow us to have a platform where we can upload a PDF, dress it up with videos, slideshows, audio. We've embedded an entire movie in one of our issues, all right? And it's not just living up there in the cloud, although it can, and it does, Mm -hmm. but if you decide you want the current issue of Video Watchdog for free, first of all, be assured it's going to look exactly like the magazine because the same PDF I used to print it from, I used to upload it into the cloud. Then we add trailers. So imagine you're sitting here reading uh, about Mad Max, which is one of our current issues. And you can go and click on the first Mad Max movie review that's there. And there's a little arrow. Click on it right there on the page. Doesn't take you anywhere, but a movie starts to play over the picture that's there. It's a trailer for the movie. It enhances your, your experience of reading the article. You're reading the article, it starts talking about this scene, and you can actually see it right then. You don't have to go over to YouTube and try to find it. You don't have to go to the video store and buy it yet and wait. You could see it now. Not only that, with a click, you can link and go right on over to the person who's selling it if you want to buy it on Amazon or you want to buy it from the the company. Come right back to the magazine, continue reading. You can search. For anything you want, for out our 180 issues, 884 issues, and uh, 184 issues so far, plus a couple of special editions, um, and it will tell you, oh yeah, that's an issue one, or that's an issue 24, or whatever, and all you have to do is click, and if you own that issue, it comes up right there with the article. Which is, which is very nice. Yeah. Excellent. But for those people who want to hold and feel, I totally understand you need the physical copy. But if you're on the fence and you don't know, what's it going to cost you to go over and take a look at a free edition? We are approaching the digital realm differently than anybody else I know online. Hmm. Usually, when someone comes out with a new magazine online, they say, well, here's the print edition. Go ahead and subscribe, or you can order it. And we do that, too. Right. Or you want the digital well, you have to be a subscriber first, and then you got to go on over and get the free digital edition. Or they'll say, just buy it for five bucks. Just the, yeah, just the digital edition. The, just right the now. digital edition. Yeah. 
well, why do I want to buy a digital edition for five bucks? I don't even know what's in it. I don't even know if I I'm going to like it. Yeah, is it going to work it. on my device? Is it only going to work on my computer? There's too many ifs. There's too many, oh, I don't want to touch that. Mm-hmm. Forget that. And if I do, does that mean the print edition's going to disappear? Because all they want to do is go digital now. And I want my print. Well, I want my print, too. (laughs) That's not the point. I understand. Here's where we go with our policy. With the digital edition, we have advertisers who can advertise that are not maybe in our print edition because digital is cheaper for us to produce, so therefore we can get advertisers cheaper. And we can get advertisers cheaper in the digital edition so that it helps us to print our print edition. <laughs> one, one feeds the other. Right, okay. exactly. Not only that, but the digital ads are so fun because they will show a movie. Maybe it's an entire full-page ad on, um, oh, I don't know, some DVD somebody has out there. They can have a little button on their ad you click and there is a video that plays that shows a trailer for that movie and another link that takes you right to their website so you could buy it right away. And they can measure how many people have gone over and gotten it. But when you've got an ad in print, they can't. So it's very interesting to advertisers as well. But it's also so fun. You can, I've got little Easter eggs buried in my digital editions. You know, you can <laughs> click on a picture and some dinosaur roar, or, or you'll click somewhere that you didn't know existed, and all of a sudden you're going to hear an interview from somebody. So it makes you kind of go in and play a little bit and stay on, stay in the realm of Video Watchdog. So since we are putting that out like that, for the advertisers to come on board, we want as many people to see it as possible. Because if it's free, when it's new, okay, there's no barrier at all for anybody to click on that and go start looking around. And clicking on the ads for the advertisers, so take them directly to their site. Right. There's nothing to stop them from doing that. They don't have to sign in. They don't have to log in. They just click and they can see it right then and there. Now, if they decide... Gee, I'd like to keep this forever. Oh boy. Then they can. All they have to do is go to the keeper section, click on that issue, and if they aren't registered with Video Watchdog, they create an email and a password, and then it takes them right to the issue. And then they log into that issue with that same email and password, and it's theirs forever. Once they open it, there's an option to say, download this to my computer. And you can keep it on your hard drive and create your own video watchdog library and play them offline, videos and everything included. Oh, that's amazing. I didn't know the, the video pieces actually stayed with it. They stay with it entirely. Okay. Yes. But that's only on the Keeper edition. If you're just browsing around and you want to just get right in without a login, you can. But there's no way to save it. All right? Right. And then after two months, that free issue disappears forever free for free free. and the next new one comes up there's always one to replace (laughs) it okay so the next newest edition is always there so if you weren't happy with that other edition you want to look at this one great you know if you want to keep it go to the keepers section it's just another little area on the website and use that same username and password you created before and then click you only have to create that once but you log in with it click on it boom there you got it easy 
Now, you don't want to do it on a computer. Some people say, uh, I don't like to sit at my desk. I don't like to read on my computer. You know, it's inconvenient. You know, that's great. Works on a laptop, too, but that's not all it works on. It works on your iPhone, your Android phone, your Kindle uh, reader. It works on iPads, any type of Android uh, tablet. And all you have to do is go to the App Store and look for Video Watchdog. Download the free app. As soon as you're there, you're going to see the free edition right there. Okay, click. Uh, I got it. Okay, it downloads right onto your device. Click. Watch it. You don't even have to have an internet connection. It's, it's right there. You could be offline once you've, once you've clicked to get it and it downloads, and you can play the thing over and over and over. And the only trouble is, is that if you do do it on that device, then you can't see it on the computer. You have to go have to do over. it on each device, yeah. Now, actually, if you go to our website and you just go get the Keeper version, then it works on all devices. Oh, okay, but if you, okay. you just have to go to your device and click log in inside the device and log in your your video watchdog library card, we call it, your username and password. And you only have to do that once on your device. Well, that's like any other apps. So yes. You know. And once you do that, then, then everything from then on, you got a new one. Oh, good. Click. It's mine. And then, you know. You can play them on all your devices. And, of course, once again, if you just subscribe to the print edition, you get the digital editions anyway. Well, not actually. Well, you can download them. You can download them. But, you see, it's not tied to your your subscription. So other places, they tie it to your subscription. And to tell you the truth, we don't have the technology to say, oh, okay, this is a subscriber. They don't have the digital yet. Let's make sure they get it automatically. We don't even know if they got an email address, you know? So um, (laughs) what you just have to do, anybody can be a digital, quote, subscriber. Subscriber, All you do is go to our website and get the free Keeper edition each month, every two months when we get out a new edition. So even if you're a print subscriber, if you are not vigilant and go on over to our website or go over to your iPad and click when it's free, you miss the boat. You're going to have to then... Pay three dollars and ninety nine cents if you want the digital edition. I don't care. I got the print edition. <laughs> I'm good. I'm set. Yeah, you're good. And I will but, always have the print edition. Yeah. <laughs> however, you don't have this issue now that has ten extra pages of an interview from what? Sh- yes, from Shane Rimmer and one of those the new the new issue. No, not the new issue. Which oh, one was it? Issue one seventy nine or one seventy eight? Well, one seventy eight. I think we did the thing on The Shining. And we had uh, an interview with Shane Rimmer, who was uh, I don't know, a big interview with him. We didn't have the space to print it all. We printed 10 pages of that interview, but I think we got like 10 more pages digitally we added in. Donna, you with just extra want more, pages. You want more of my money. This is what <laughs> no, no, no. You should have got that when it was free. <laughs> What's wrong with you? I didn't know there were 10 extra pages of interview. Good God. Now, <laughs> oh, shoot. Well, and if you want the entire digital archive, which is worth, if you buy it each individually at $3.99, it comes to like $702, oh I God. think. You can get it for $549 in one fell swoop. Or, and sometimes we'll have 25% off everything sales. Oh, so then that, ex- that would apply to that as well. Holy so you'd crap. get it for even less than that. So and then boom, you got them all with just one purchase. Then you can download them all to your iPad. You can just go to our library online and click any one of them and open them up and read them. It's just, 
it's a field day. I tell you, people <laughs> have, have, have said that it's just a different experience altogether. Because even our back issues have all these videos and things in them. You've gone back to old issues and added in things? Everything, yes. Okay, now that's that's impressive because that's not something you really needed to do. And this is not the end of it. Let's say, for instance, our Exorcist issue number six was our early popular edition. We revealed all these missing scenes and things from The Exorcist. Mm -hmm. And now they come out with a DVD on Blu-ray with all these extra scenes and so forth. Mm -hmm. We could go back to issue six and we could add an extra article about that DVD if we want and embed it in issue six. Oh, wow, yeah. And then if you've already bought issue six, that's great. Free updates. Oh, wow. Download it again. Replay. Oh, you could. We'll say on our website what changed. You know, if yeah. it was just fixes, you know, like we didn't like where this button pushed to start a video, or no, there's more pages. Go get it. You already well, own amazing. it. That's amazing. That's incredible. So these are living, living magazines now because we can go back and add anything we want. And I guess that's really one of the best reasons for this in the first place would be simply because they are infinitely updatable with more information at a later time. Oh, that's yeah. That's Absolutely. I hadn't even I hadn't even considered that. You're right. Absolutely, and people can also go back and put ads in those early editions as well. We have no limitation oh, on that. We like, could add um, pages. Oh, I just and, and it just occurred to me, like the, for instance, uh, new editions of certain classic movies are coming out on Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. If they know, if they want to, they can link an ad to Video Watchdog's in-depth look at that particular film, an article that came out five years ago, yes. and. Anyone accessing that information will then have that ad right in front of them. Exactly. Wow, I didn't even that's that just occurred to me as well. But of course, obviously, it didn't just occur to you. No, because that, it's clear. It is something I wanted from the beginning. I said I need to make sure I have enough space to add ads in later if I want, because yeah. people will want to. People still buy our individual issues one at a time here or there. Oh, I want that article or yeah. whatever. Let's get that now. And oh my goodness people overseas the postage over there is crazy now if to send a magazine over to europe or anything but yeah uh, one little click download i got it now you know with the extras and it's well that's right this is worldwide this is restricted worldwide exactly it's the internet so (laughs) (laughs) remember the internet that's right i do keep forgetting that i tell you but you know it's so hard right now to show people what we've got because because the advertisers are so used to just being in print. Right. Or if they hear about a digital ad, they think, oh, it's a, one of those crazy things on somebody's website that I can only have to pay $500 for, and it's only there for like a week. And I don't know how many people click on it, you know, to right. get to my site or whatever, and then it disappears. No. All of our ads that we put into Video Watchdog are there forever. Oh, that's fantastic, yeah. It, they don't go away. And they stay on the page because the readers are engaged with turning the pages, trying to find all the bells and whistles. So they'll gravitate toward the advertising pages also to see what's new and to see a sample or to hear one of your podcasts, for instance. We oh, have true. actually, yeah. yes, we early, have. Early on when you first went digital, you uh, went out of your way to actually include a clip from uh, one of our early uh, Nashi casts, which I think, I, which was, which was amazing because then I had to, uh, uh, you know, let my ego inflate and find one that made me sound really smart. And it was great. <laughs> I love how we've, we've got it 
it in there for the different links that you could go to, which you can actually hear an entire podcast there. And you could put a link actually under here if you like and go directly to that page and that issue. So it's issue 175, (laughs) Video Watchdog. (laughs) But um, it's just fantastic. I'm so excited about it. Not only for advertisers, trying to get them to figure out, oh, yeah, this is really an important place to be. But also for readers, because they're so afraid. I know many of them are afraid, and for good reason. You've, you've seen certain formats of discs come and go. So you think when a magazine goes digital, print's going to go away. Yeah. But we have to. We are not going to go through the trouble of doing an entire magazine, laying it all out, doing it all, just to make it digital. It won't pay for itself. We know our readers want to have a physical item. And so we make it print. Now, the more we can sell on digital and helps us to sell our print farther in the world, get us into more bookstores, you know, especially with advertising support. Advertisers want to see it in print and in digital, and we do too. But people who aren't digital, don't have computers, feel funny about all that. There's nothing to lose. If you can, if you're listening to this podcast, you can operate some sort of electronic device <laughs> that would allow you to at least go to the website and click and just try it out. There's nothing you have to do. Oh, I know. The fact that it's absolutely each 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 new issue is completely free for mm-hmm. two months. Mm-hmm. Total total open access. That's astonishing in and of itself. If if I had had that capability. Ten years ago, my collection of video watchdogs might be smaller because I'm lazy, but, <laughs> <laughs> but also because I'm cheap. And it's certainly, even if I wanted to keep them in digital format, it's it's cheaper than the, the cover price of the magazine yeah. in print form. So. And if you get a new computer, doesn't matter. Just download it again from the cloud. Or if you've already got them stored on your computer and you lost everything, don't worry. It's there in the cloud. And you Just can pull go it download again. them again. Right. That's no problem. Another thing that we love doing in the digital edition is putting that di- that personal touch in. For each digital edition that we've put out since issue 175, Tim has enhanced upon his editorial called The Watchdog Barks by putting in a little video of himself and ha- talking about the issue, about what's coming up, the people who have written for the issue. And in one issue, I believe it was 180... I'll have to go look and see. (laughs) Anyway, one of those. uh, Tim's Barks column talked about the Cincinnati Enquirer, which was our local paper, how they have their old issues online now and he was having great fun going through and finding old movie ads oh the newspaper ads the for newspaper uh, for, ads. The, for the the for the theaters for and the, the double theaters, features and yeah. triple features and stuff that was fascinating when he was posting that stuff yeah yeah and he wrote an entire editorial about it how much fun he was having doing it and many readers may not understand or remember many readers may not remember that Tim and I met in a movie theater mm-hmm. i was cashier and in the little box office of the Alby Theater, and Tim came up and asked if he, there was a pass at the door for him, and I didn't have one, but I remembered him calling in earlier to go up to the manager, so I let him in. And so he wrote a thank you to me at the box office, and then I wrote him a thank you back. So we started meeting that way by writing to each other, and then we met on Fountain Square 
our whole story started that way. So, of course, when Tim's writing about this in his barks for the digital edition, he decided to invite me to be his little video um, companion here in the digital edition. And we told our story of how we met at the box office. And it also coincided with a picture that we found online that was taken two weeks before I met Tim. And it's a picture of the Albee Theater and the box office, and I am in the box office. (laughs) And it's a thing in the National Archives, one of those big pictures of Cincinnati, one of those great pictures of Fountain Square, and the name of the movie was up there on the marquee and everything. So we explained it all in the bark section and the little movie. Uh And then in the letterbox section, where we normally give letters from our readers, we took scans of our original letters to each other. His original thank you to thanking me for letting him in free and my response to him. And I posted pictures of them in the letterbox area. You just click click on the thumbnails and it pops up the entire letter. And so it's our it's the way we can embed ourselves permanently into video watchdog oh, by and the, to share by the it way, with everybody. You, you caused many tears out there in the world when y'all posted that stuff as well. By the way, it's just <laughs> oh, one of the sweetest things in the world. I swear. Well, we feel that our readers are family. It's our big video watchdog family. Honest to God, just walking through public uh, conventions and things, if people seem to recognize us, they turn around and say, "I'm so and so." I'm one of your subscribers. I said, oh, of course you are. I remember your name, you know, because I do all the mailing. I do all the other, the layout, all the, I do every chief cook and bottle washer, a video watchdog. <laughs> I just don't review anything. <laughs> but you're the, you're, you, you've yeah. been, you, well, you have continued to be the kind of calm in the middle of the storm, kind of the, the, the den mother for the crazed lunatics as we babble till four in the morning. So. Because I understand where people are coming from. And although... Uh, it may be irritating sometimes for, you know, people, if they didn't get their edition or something and they, they think they're going to call and really complain and they f- just find me saying, oh, sure, I'll resend it to you. No problem. I understand. You know, then it's like, oh, it's a real person at the other end of the phone. <laughs> it's a human or, being. Yeah. Or I could Facebook you or I could email you and you actually respond. You know, of course we do. We understand. Yeah. We've been in the boat. We, we've been at the other end. We've been where we are collectors. We still are collectors. Our house is a warehouse. You know? <laughs> oh, God, I know. <laughs> so we really appreciate uh, the... Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to to come here to your podcast and tell people about this. I just think it is so exciting. And if I talk to people one-on-one about this, they, I just see their level of excitement rising. It's oh, like, yeah. oh, this is so cool got to try it out you know and no need to thank me for this because this is the kind of thing that i know people who listen to this podcast uh and podcasts like this that are going to be very interested in uh we've mentioned on the podcast video watchdog numerous times of course we've had we've had tim on the show a few times as well so it's not as if someone who's been listening to the podcast for any period of time can get away from the fact that we're going to end up referencing video watchdog one way or another but the fact that uh, this 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 whole new realm of digital uh, added benefit, added added content, all the bells and whistles, um, as we just discovered a few minutes ago, there were things I didn't know about it. Oh my God! So <laughs> this is uh, this is something that I think is so accessible. the The free aspect of it is incredible, and it's something that I think that 
it, it's I, I, I almost want to warn people it's addictive get once you start delving into it as soon as, as soon as you realize oh there's an article on that film that I absolutely love you're going to dive head first into it and you're never going to come up for air but you're going to drown happy <laughs> <laughs> just like just like the rest of us because it really is it's the premier magazine of this type and if you've not been reading it before you know, what's it going to cost you to check it out now absolutely nothing so. that's right that's right well, Donna, I want to thank you very much for sitting down and doing this. I, I know that uh, you, you're trying to get the word out about this. And uh, any little help that I can be, any, anything that we can do here on the podcast is something that we will do. You've obviously been plenty of help for us. And anytime you want to come back, just let us know. Well, thank you. And I'll tell you what, I'll give you another gift here for your listeners. Sure. If they would like to try Video Watchdog in the digital realm, you always can do that. If any of you are just hooked and you want to get the whole archive, I'm giving it to you now for half off. It's half of 500. Uh, whatever, half of 500, five, 275, whatever it is. 50% off <laughs> through the end of 2016. For the rest of this year. Right. All you cool. have to do is type in coupon code as when you are checking out. Mm-hmm. Type in coupon code podcast. Perfect. All right. And you will get the discount. All right? That's great. Now, as uh, soon as we're not talking here, we got to work out a deal where I can get it all for free. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you again, Donna. Thank you so much, Rod. really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Did you ever see a film at such a young age it left you traumatized with cinematic wounds? Ah, necrophilia. It's a dead issue, man. Don't don't push it. Cinema PsyOps is a weekly podcast documenting an ongoing experiment on the mind of an unwilling test subject. No one should have to watch this movie. Oh, no one should have to watch this? No one should have to watch this movie. Surprisingly, it's not a topic that a lot of people really want to tackle. I'm shocked, prudes. I know, really. Right? It's the next sexual frontier that no one wants to explore. I am, in the most sincerest of senses, disappointed in you. It takes a powerful goddess like Connie, jam her arm down the monster's throat and kill it. Oh, I'm still tripping out over that. Even as a kid, I was like, I gotta find a girl like that. Every week, I, I get a new look of disappointment that I never thought I could get it's out of. Unimaginable. At 12 years old, you should not be watching this. Obviously. At 13, you should not be. 14, you shouldn't be. I'm not entirely sure even 17-year-olds should be watching this. Just because you're offended by something doesn't mean that you have the right to demand that it doesn't exist. Watching this film again, I had all of this like little nerd glee with everything that kept Little history doll yeah, popping up absolutely. at you. So I totally loved this film. Hey, I know why you, you know, couldn't see that. It's because your brain's warped from watching this shit at 12 years old. Yeah, this is this is a rough movie. I told you ahead of time when we were getting ready to do it that it was How did you watch movie. this shit at 12? Because physical wounds heal, cinematic ones don't. Listen to Cinema Psyops. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a serialized monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror films. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos, The Hands of Fate, and the original chill role-playing game. My goal is to recreate the thrills of the monster versus monster films that we all love. We'll have vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, and scheming madmen. And that's just in the first storyline. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors and other monster stories sent directly to your email for as little as a dollar a month. 
For just $2, you'll get all the chapters in advance, plus bonus stories and other perks. Sign up now at CushingHorrors.com or visit SDSullivan.com for a Patreon link. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again. And remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. Uh, with the other half of the video watchdog family, that would be, uh, well, man, that makes you the patriarch. Oh, my Lord. Have you ever thought about it that way? We think of ourselves as a mom and pop shop, so I guess I'm, I'm the pop. You're the pop. This is? I'm, or the pope. This is, this is pop, <laughs> pop or pope, Tim Lucas, sitting down with us for a little while to talk about um, uh, what has become over the years one of my favorite subjects, and definitely one that he is uh, knowledgeable about beyond uh, measure as far as I'm concerned, because he's the one I go to to ask questions about this man. We're going to talk a little bit about Jess Franco. Okay. Now, you, you've written, of course, you've written at least a book, or co-written a book, plus I don't know how many articles in Video Watchdog off the top of my head, but numerous. When I first started uh, delving into the world of Jess Franco films, at your behest, because I was reading Video Watchdog, and you were quite persuasive. Mm-hmm. So when I finally started watching some of the films, I was perplexed, because clearly I thought this Lucas fellow must be insane. <laughs> what is he talking about? <laughs> All I'm seeing are these meandering nudathons. Yeah. Revolving around, I don't know what anymore. You know, the funny thing was is that when I first got got familiar with with Franco's films, when I was watching them for the first time, I didn't care much for them. And I have to admit that as a young critic, I was sort of taking on the legacy of how other people wrote about him, which was always dismissively. So, uh, you know, I joined the club and talked against the films and made fun of him and in, you can find this in early writings that I did for like Video Times magazine. Really? Where I once compared trying to watch one of his movies to like move through a wall of cement with one's forehead. You know. <laughs> um, I remember doing that. And it was all stupid, unfair, you know, one of the learning curves of writing criticism or becoming a critic anyway. Oddly enough, uh, there was a time in the late 80s 
when Wizard Video, for example, started releasing a bunch of stuff from Eurocine in these big box cassettes, and as I kept being confronted with them, I thought, okay, I'm going to give these a try because they're horror movies I've never heard of, things like Zombie Lake, you know. And <laughs> yeah. But there was also uh, Female Vampire, which at that time was called uh, The Loves of Irena, from private screenings, uh, that was was the mind blower for me, the first real mind blower. But I looked at some of the other stuff, which wasn't even Franco's stuff, but it was like misidentified as his work, or if you became aware of the pseudonyms he used, it looked like it might be his work. So there was some misidentification going on there. But I, I ended up writing a big thing for Fangoria. It was a two-part article, uh, sort of looking over everything that was available on VHS at that time. And that, that was when my Franco fascination began. And I have to say that the tumblers finally clicked when I watched uh, one of his movies. I think it was Female Vampire, when I was ill and running a high fever. <laughs> <laughs> so my sensibilities were deranged when I was watching it. So when you say you thought I was insane, you know, I was definitely <laughs> deranged when, uh, when Franco finally clicked for me. And, you know, I've stayed that way. <laughs> well, now, the way I've tried to introduce some people to uh, Franco, now that I've kind of, I, I, because uh, for the first few years I knew of his films, I, I was an obsessive f- f- film watcher, just trying to see as many as possible. Of course, I'm still that way. Mm-hmm. But I kind of started watching more and more of his films because I thought that when you when you, when you looked at the, the the huge volume of them, I thought, well, there's got to be something in here, maybe something in here that I'm going to end up enjoying because there were at least always exploitable elements in the movies that would keep your attention at different points of the film, even if it drifted at different times. Or even really terrific scenes in the midst of movies that otherwise seem to miss the mark completely. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So what I ended up discovering was when I finally got to uh, his... uh, uh, early to mid-60s work, things like Awful Dr. Orloff and The Diabolical Dr. Z, and the films made around that time, which had a bit more of the standard structure that I was comfortable with, suddenly I enjoyed those movies. I really, really liked them. Even though they had those really odd elements that were just at odd... They were at right angles to some of the expectations of somebody walking into a film like that. And of course, with Awful Dr. Orloff, it was a film made in the early to mid-60s that shocked me by actually including nudity, which is something that still we're, you know, that still catches my attention and catches me off guard when I'm looking at a movie from earlier than the introduction of the, 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 the MPAA code. Uh, I just, I'm always shocked enough to, it, it, it wakes me up in a way that I'm just not ready for every time I see it. That, that gave me a less negative view of Franco was because simply because well wait a minute I really enjoy this movie as a matter of fact I enjoy this movie enough to watch it and rewatch it a few times and then Diabolical Doctor Z was the same way and then I started seeing more of his sixties work and so my initial thought process and this is how I kind of try to lead some people into watching more Franco is start with the early stuff and just move forward chronologically just start really go back and start there because. With those early black and white movies he made in the 60s, if you have the sensibility of someone who enjoys the Universal Monster films, this might get you there. These are the films that are probably going to be the easiest entry point for you. But it took much longer for me to get comfortable enough to start going through his late 60s through late 70s period 
with anything other than total exasperation. And I could not tell you, I wish I could pinpoint which one of the films from uh, the 70s that I was watching that suddenly woke me up. Uh, there's a part of me that wants to say it may have been um, uh, Nightmare Comes at Night, or it could have been Exorci- uh, Exorci- uh, Exorcism. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could have been one of those. I'm not sure. But I know it involved a lot of female nudity. Mm-hmm. At any rate, it held my attention, and I found myself falling into, I guess, falling into sync with the mood of the film, mm-hmm. and suddenly realizing that something that you had written that I had read sometime before finally made sense, which is not the idea of the film being dreamlike or being a fever dream, but it kind of being something of a melancholy remembrance of events past. And maybe the edges of of the memory are fuzzy, which contributes to the, the kind of drifting state of the narrative at times, but if it catches you correctly and you can sync your mood up to the mood that the film is trying to induce in you, there's, there's real magic there. And so having had that happen with a few of his films, not all of them, I found myself beginning to enjoy a lot of the films that I thought your positive reviews of pointed toward the madhouse. <laughs> and I suddenly realized, wait a minute, I may be in an adjoining room in that particular madhouse. And I started to really, really enjoy it. Jess Franco and I, clearly, if you look at his movies, he and I share a number of similar interests. Pulp stories, uh, adventure stories, horror, horror tales, uh, the more garish, the better. A love of monster movies, a love of, of uh, even the mixing of those elements. So the things that worked earliest and best for me in reviewing as many of his films as I've seen is when our interests very obviously intersect and he's playing with something in a way that is slightly familiar but really honestly different in many ways, often ways I don't expect. And that's when I really started to enjoy things. And there were fil- the, the films that I kind of found myself going back to again and again weren't necessarily always the ones that I could link up in that kind of dreamlike, melancholy mood, but things like Night of the Skulls, which is pretty straightforward, and all, but also really enjoyable, in my, in my opinion. It's part Old Dark House. It's part, uh, you know, part mystery story. It's part uh, universal horror shot through with some of the, the color schemes that you might expect from a, from a kind of lower-budget Hammer movie or Amicus thing. When he's doing those kind of things, I love it, but then over the years I've actually gotten really comfortable with his really strange sense of humor, too, uh, and enjoying, kind of like with the Hitchcock films, waiting for his cameo and enjoying where he puts himself in the narrative, uh, wondering if he's going to actually have sex with someone on screen, which is kind of disconcerting at times. But I find myself enjoying almost films from almost every decade of his career, except for the stuff near the very end of his career, the shot on video stuff, which I just can't find much enjoyment in. And so I guess the question I would give to you as someone who has seen way more Franco than I would simply be, if someone was curious, what would be the two to three or even five films that you would say this would be where I would start? Um, The Diabolical Dr. Z, I think, would be a good place to start. Venus and Furs is is, uh, 
with James Darren. That's a good with know. James Darren, and it, it also is one of his more musically oriented uh, films, and and I think that uh, it's a key to his larger body of work in that sense because you talked about that melancholy mood related to uh, an incident in the past. That is actually a kind of jazz mode, you know, for a jazz ballad, you know, but he's transliterating this to uh, a narrative, you know, free-flowing narrative, just like a, a jazz improvisation. So I, re- I really think that, the, that you were talking about sharing things in common with him, like pulp stories, horror stories, monster rallies, and so on. I think the stronger your familiarity with jazz in general uh, the more responsive you'll be to his work from the get-go, um, as long as you can identify what what mode he's he's working in. But I, I think that he's always at his strongest, you know. And this is also true of people like Miles Davis and John Coltrane <laughs> when they're playing ballads. Somebody once asked Coltrane why he stopped playing ballads, and he says, "Because I love playing them too much." Uh, you know, he, he yeah. wanted to be outside his comfort zone. You know, he wanted to be creating something, and I think that got to be true with with Franco too. He realized that that his ballad mode, you know, which he revisited through, you know, I would say the uh, the '60s, certainly the '70s and the '80s. That's when it when it's heaviest. But in the '90s, when his career sort of bottomed out, and then when he came back with the home video stuff, with the directed video stuff, um, that that feeling sort of leaves his work and it becomes something else. It almost becomes uh, akin to like an Albert Eiler free jazz or that Coleman thing with sort of bittersweet harmonic tones, but, you know, sort of more aggressive in a strange way. But I, of, of specific names, but I know that there are people who are very much in, into Franco who uh, sort of disregard the video work because they can't quite find a hook in it. Yeah, I've not been able to. I've watched two of them, and I've not been able to find my way into it because I, it's the um, it's the look of it that's pushing me away. I know exactly yeah. what it is. It's yeah. it's that it's that shot on video look. Yeah, it's uh, the fellow I was thinking of was Alain Petit, who who wrote the French book on on Franco, and has been one of his longest chroniclers, and was a personal friend of his. Uh, he told me that when he was finally getting to the point of, of doing uh, the book that collected his 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 fanzines of, of the coverage, and he said, I'm, "I'm thinking about disregarding the uh, the video stuff altogether because he really had no relationship to it, and he didn't really." But he ended up covering it, and I, I thought he was pretty fair in what what he wrote about it. I think I think it's different. I mean, it's it's uh, it's a guy who's who's like Ken Russell did at the end of his career when he was not able to get, you know, real work. He made films in his backyard. Um, and, uh, you know, Franco's last uh, feature film, or his, at least his penultimate feature film, was shot right in his own living room, uh, you know, on a phone. So It was shot on a phone? Yeah, it was wow. shot on a phone. So that's Paula Paula, you know, which has little nods to his uh, Al Pereira movies. Mm-hmm. Lena Romay and her, her last appearance plays Alma Pereira it's like a cop with a desk job you know they just had her sitting at a little desk near the living room you mentioned and I I the more I thought about this because you've mentioned it to me before the the whole idea of the the more of a feel you have for jazz composition the more 
easy it becomes to gain entry into a lot of those uh, those uh, 70s and forward late 60s 70s and forward Franco films I think is accurate and I can I can say this because when I initially years ago sat down and watched Erotic Rites of Fra- his two his two uh, "Quote unquote monster alley films: Erotic Rites of Frankenstein and Frankenstein, or, uh, Frankenstein Prisoner of Dracula." Mm-hmm. Dracula uh, Prisoner of Frank. Is it Dracula? Pri- I'm sorry, it's the one that I haven't watched in recent times because I did watch uh, my revisit to Erotic Rites mm-hmm. is because of the the, the recent Blu-ray, mm-hmm. and I was not looking forward to revisiting the film because my memory of it was absolutely hating both of those films. Mm-hmm. Just despising them, being upset and angry and frustrated by them. So when I sat down, I had that in my memory, but it was long enough ago. It was well over a decade since I'd watched them. So I sat down and watched Erotic Rites off the Blu-ray and found myself within 15 minutes having a completely different reaction this time. Some and, of it has to do with the presentation because yes. the, the older bootlegs were just a mess. They were, they, they, they were terrible, but... By the time I watched the film a third time off that Blu-ray, I realized finally what it was that I was reacting to, which was I had finally gotten past my expectations for what the film should be. Mm-hmm. In other words, at the time I watched it, I was immersed in the universal and hammer cycle of Frankenstein and Dracula films, and I, whether unconsciously or not, wanted that kind of movie and thought, oh, wow, I'm just going to get that kind of movie with uh, an injection of more overt sexuality or more uh, eroticism in a, in a, in a twisted way. You or expect a level of professional polish to sort of sugarcoat the experience. But yes. he gives you something that's very raw that was shot with a very minimal crew. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, everybody has a sort of expectation of what what they consider to be technical expertise. But I find that when I go back and I look at a movie like, you know, House of Dracula or something like that, uh, or especially Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, which Universal recently gave a a huge, I think it's like a 2 or a 4K restoration to, um, if you go back and look at that, they really missed the opportunity that that title presented them with. The fight between the two monsters is a sore disappointment. After Agreed. the build-up, but at least Franco, you know, in his uh, ragtag manner, <laughs> gives you a real fight. <laughs> That's true, as well as plenty of male and female nudity. Yes. Wow. Well, the thing is, that reaction, my secondary reaction, watching it on a granted much better presentation of the film, but just revisiting it without the the expectations of what I wanted the film to be, and just letting the film be what it is. And take it take it on its own level and let it stand or fall on the merits and the 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 attempt that it's actually making instead of the attempt I wanted them to make. I loved the movie. I fell in love with Erotic Rites of Frankenstein. And if you'd said that I was eventually going to champion that movie and really, really love it, if you'd said that to me 10, 12, 15 years ago, right after I'd first seen the movie, I would have called you insane and hoped for my eventual demise before I reached that level of mental degeneration. But I can tell you, I, lo- I love that movie, and I want to now revisit a better copy of of uh, Dracula Prisoner of Frankenstein. I want to see if I have the same reaction to that film. Well, it would be great if an uncut copy of that film would surface. I mean, that's probably the most stubborn 
uh, unrecovered thing in all of Franco's filmography at this point in time, uh, because there are stills that show that there was some nudity involved in the uh, original uh, shooting of the film for the for the French market, presumably. But a French copy of the film has never surfaced. Everything has wow. been taken from the Spanish version, uh, which. Uh, you know, where anything erotic in nature had to be curtailed. But as it is, the fact that that element is curtailed sort of keeps the film truer to the tone of the 1930s and 40s that it was tipping its hat to. Um, I'd still love having the option of both versions of being able to compare sure, and contrast, of course. Sure. Because they're, they're bound to be different in, in different ways. I mean, the, there's the woman from the, from the tavern, I think, or she's like the entertainer at the tavern who's abducted by the monster and yeah. taken back to the, to the place. And uh, then there's also a shot of uh, another actor in the film who's also strapped you know, naked to uh, a table in the, in the laboratory for who, who knows what nefarious ends. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd love to see a, a really class presentation of that. The thing that has most surprised me is that in the past um, six or seven months, uh, I finally delved into an aspect of the uh, the '70s Franco films that I knew uh, from reading you and from uh, from talking with other people about um, that period in his filmography. That there are a number of films that he shot separate separate and completely different versions of films that are very similar that may even have fifty percent of the same footage, but the other 50% makes the movie completely different, completely a, a completely different narrative, uh, different characters, not, not just the names, but the motivations, everything about them. And I finally decided to delve into uh, one of those films, get my hands on two different versions of it, and watch them as, you know, as, close to, uh, as close to one another as I could and compare and contrast just for myself. And so what I chose was the, the easily available Fury in the Tropics, and, uh, darn, what was the name of the alternate version? Mujeres Acrolatus. So, subtitled versions of both. Mm-hmm. I think I watched Fury in the Tropics first and uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. It's a good little uh, jungle female prison thing. Mm-hmm. And um, quite an interesting movie. Then, sat down a day or two later and watched the other film. And they're incredibly similar for about 35 minutes. <laughs> except that I started Different to notice... Score. Different a different score and different narration. Still, uh-huh. still Lena Romay, but the narration that's over those exact same shot scenes becomes very different. We're getting a very different story here. And then... Shot about four years later, I think. Was it that far? I think so. Oh, wow. So the back half of the film is very different. It's a com- not a, just a completely different story. Mm-hmm. But the first half of the movie is almost identical footage, maybe mildly edited in different ways, definitely a different score, but that change in narration, even when they're retaining almost the exact dialogue in certain sequences in the first half of the movie, have a completely different color in the story that's being told. And I found it fascinating. I had uh, read uh, comments uh, in different articles that you'd written just little reviews of, uh, even just reviews of certain uh, Franco films that have multiple versions, and had been kind of amused and fascinated by this. But that was the first instance where I did it myself and could understand the the complete fascination of essentially spinning a whole new tale out of uh, mildly unraveled cloth 
that you had made some time before. It's almost addictive, so I was able to keep myself from doing it again, but then recently I decided to do it again, and I finally finally sat down and watched one uh, of Franco's films that I, um, I haven't been able to watch an alternate version of yet, but I've read enough to know that there definitely is one, and I compared notes with you, and uh, it's the, the version I got was the Italian version of a film called uh, The Obscene Mirror, or The Other Side of the Mirror, and... It's important to think of them as two separate movies. So with those two titles, the obscene mirror and the other side of the mirror. Okay, two okay, that, 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 you're right. That that is you're, you, that's probably true. So I watched the obscene mirror. But like I should just interject. Sure. Like the the other two that you were just talking about, Furia and El Tropico and Mujeres Acorralados. They both share footage, but they tell different stories. I haven't gotten my hands on another version of it, but having watched this one and really having enjoyed it. First of all, it's it's a, it's an interesting story. It's another one of those uh, melancholy remembrance types stories. And in this one, I like the fact that we uh, the film actually shows us the instigating incident that causes the uh, the sadness, the regret, the guilt that the main character is dealing with for the the majority of the movie. It also helps that the actress in this case is the the lovely and very talented Emma Cohen, who is. An amazing screen presence. I have no, I've known her, of course, because of her appearance in uh, Horror Rises from the Tomb with Nashi. And Cutthroat's Nine. Oh, and Cutthroat's Nine, of course. And uh, although she's not as alluring in Cutthroat's Nine, she's just not given the opportunity in that film. Right. Everybody's nasty and, and grimy in that movie. But she's very, very good in this movie. As I say, I watched this Italian version of the film, which I think is identical to the French. I, I can't confirm that. I've never I, seen. I think. It, I think it at least maybe very I've close. Seen the Italian well, this is the version that actually has uh, hardcore sex scenes, and the major difference between it. That are, is there actually hardcore? Sex? Yes, there is. Yes, there is. Then those were added just to the Italian version. Okay. Okay. If you look at the French version, uh, there are scenes with Lena Romay and her husband at that time, Ramon Ardi. Uh, who was a photographer? For but it's but those are softcore. Uh, they're softcore. They they you know get close. Right. You know it's like some near misses, um, but uh, there's no actual penetration in in those scenes because it was a little before French uh, cinema went over into hardcore. Okay. Right on the cusp. Then this is definitely the Italian version because there are uh, there are a lot of uh, softcore gro- uh, so- softcore groping with the Lena Romay character, mm-hmm. but in this it's primarily with a female partner. Right. So uh, there's the the sapphic end of the sexual sexual thing, and then we do have inserts of her with a male partner as well with with pen- with with definite penetration uh, insert okay. shots placed into the film. The Italians did that on, on a number of Franco films. I know they did that with uh, The Perverse Countess. There was one called okay. Sexy Nature that they did that took softcore material, I think, that Franco had shot, and they added hardcore to it. Okay. So having really enjoyed the film, really thinking that it was a beautiful, well-done movie, enjoyed every aspect of it, I always love seeing Lena Romay on screen. I always love uh, seeing Howard Vernon, and Howard Vernon plays Emma Cohen's character's father. The thing that got me curious was that I, when watching it, I had almost forgotten that there was supposed to be a different cut of this film, but as the uh, movie wound to its conclusion, I suddenly remembered that, wow, Howard Vernon just kind of disappeared from the movie. Mm-hmm. So I immediately went to IMDb just to, just to see 
it, what information was there. And just reading the brief description of uh, the film on IMDb told me that I definitely need to seek out the other version of the film because the description on IMDb of the film indicates that the Howard Vernon character, the father character, is the character who commits suicide in the version they're speaking of. Well, that doesn't happen in this. It's the Lena Romay character, who is the Emma Cohen character's sister, who commits suicide in the version that I watched, the Italian version. So that is a big change, and does kind of does kind of tell you that they didn't. There, there was no finessing the exit of the Howard Vernon character at all. They just never go back to him. But it's very easy casting my mind back onto the performance that uh, Emma Cohen puts in it puts in in the movie that. All of that guilt and regret and uh, the the melancholy mood and the the, the, the fits of of uh, depression that she falls into at different points in the latter part of the film very much reads not just it could very easily read as the grief of her father's suicide on the eve of her wedding. Mm-hmm. I now think that that version of the film will probably end up being even more impressive mm-hmm. because that. That just that just rings more uh, emotionally honest to me, yeah. narratively. Right, but also you have to think that in in the obscene mirror, every time you see uh, Emma Cohen react to something uh, emotionally, she's reacting to something that wasn't there, wasn't even in the script at the time she filmed those scenes. It's her <laughs> footage being manipulated now to fit this other thing, which may have something to do with why they never worked together again. Because oh, really? uh, Franco tinkered with with her performance after you know after it was done and after the film had been released to considerable acclaim and he sort of turned it into this uh, sort of strong soft sex movie. I, I can I can imagine actresses having a problem with that. <laughs> well, <laughs> but this... I, I have to tell you the the strength of the first film is is musical. Um, it's about twenty minutes longer. Uh, in the version that was finally released on uh, on French DVD, the other side of the mirror, the other side of the mirror, um, and one thing that that's in that film that I think is lost in the other version is there is a piece of music that you first see her sort of tentatively playing on the piano, and it's heard throughout the movie, and and it can actually be maddening to people that are very sensitive to like you know earworms and things like that. <laughs> Uh, and he does that a lot in his movies. He will take one theme and he will hammer it right into your skull for the full 90 minutes. It happens in Bahia Blanca, I remember. Um, it happens in uh, in one of his early black and white films. I think it might be uh, uh, Death Whistles the Blues, I remember. Um, but in this film, in fact, when I first saw it without subtitles and had to sort of feel my way through what was happening... I thought that Emma Cohen's character, Anna, was a composer, a jazz composer. Oh, because okay. we do see that she's a performer. Um, and I thought she was writing this song, and I thought, well, this movie is sort of the story of how a song grows from being composed tentatively at the piano to being performed live to actually influencing other people in their lives. Because at a, at a later point in the film, you see a whole carload of people, and they're all singing this song. Yeah. So it's like infected the air. You know, it's in the air around them. This thing that started out at the beginning of the movie very tentatively. But as the way the film plays in this other version, it's more of of uh, it's more of a song that already exists that changes meaning depending on the context in which it's played. That's right. 
That's Which is also fascinating. It so. is. It is. That's that's why this particular pair of films is is probably of of all the different variables that he that he made. And I don't know what exactly the circumstances were for why he filmed the French version. I know that he had to sex it up, but I don't know why he rewrote it to that extent. Maybe just different turns in in the narrative. Different possibilities occurred to him, and he wanted to play with that. Maybe he was falling under the spell of Lena Romay, and she was available to enact his fantasies, and he followed it for that reason. Yeah, when I saw the film with subtitles, I I could appreciate that the journey that's taken by this song is she's learning it. She's learning how to play the song, and then it becomes something that she performs uh, in concert, and it's also something that she plays when she's feeling down and she's just by herself, and and also when when she's in the car with all these other people that she meets and and whose lives she negatively affects, uh, it's something that they all share in in a fleeting moment of of joy. So, in addition to everything else, the movie's about it's about music and about uh, how it touches us in our in our lives. There's a wonderful scene where. She's sitting at the piano in a in a room where other people are speaking and, and drinking and, and talking amongst one another, uh, but she's not a part of any of those conversations, and she's just kind of tinkling on the piano a little bit, playing around a little bit, and she's incredibly sad. As a matter of fact, she's just radiating radiating a, a, a dark a dark emotion, although she's not speaking at all. Her friends step over to her, and you see her forcefully make herself outwardly happy mm-hmm. and start playing a, a an upbeat song so start start just immediately and it, it's as if she turns on a dime and if you've ever been around someone um, who's who's faking their way through a really dark part of their life you've seen that scene play out where the friends are actually worried about her and they're just not aware enough that what you're doing is just getting her to act out a pantomime of real happiness, and it's and unfortunately it's not going to penetrate. But you see her acknowledge that this is something I need to give them, or I just need this is going to be this is going to be easier, or maybe I should snap out of it. Maybe this will help me snap out of it. Maybe if I act this way, and she plays it so effectively that it was it was like for me watching someone that I knew and realizing while I'm watching it in a detached way, knowing full well. She's not showing her emotions. She was showing her emotions, and now she's trying to put. She's put on a mask. She's put on a false face to make things easier for her friends. Mm-hmm. And she's doing her best, but it's very easy to see through it. But it's it's so well played. But there are a lot of scenes where I was kind of taken aback by her ability to communicate a, 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 some very nuanced emotional moves. Mm-hmm. And she's very flirtatious in the film. I mean, yeah. you can see her. I mean, and a lot of actresses, when you see them perform and they're supposed to play an attractive character, you know, they just sort of allow the light to hit them a certain way or they don't really do anything to charm. But in her performance, you can really see her sort of flirt to the to the camera. I remember that scene when, uh, his name is uh, Philippe Lemaire, uh, the older man who, uh, married man, who, who, they, who she meets on Oh, yes, yes, yes. And, he walks her to this gate, and as she walks away, she's wearing this sort of rainbow caftan, and she spreads it like wings, and she sort of walks away, knowing that he's watching her every step mm-hmm, of the way. Mm-hmm. That's a charming moment. 
And I remember her too when she meets the uh, the jazz musician and they're in the in the car. Uh, her behavior with him is is flirtatious in a in a similar way. You don't you don't actually see that kind of behavior in movies too much. It's a surprising movie because I think it's if it were better known. Um, I know there's been I know there's been a, a a DVD release somewhere in Europe of one version of the film or another. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that that's uh, if if Erotic Rites of Frankenstein and Nightmare Comes at Midnight and uh, Lord of the Exorcist and so many other wonderful Franco films have gotten nice, really nice special edition releases over here in the States. I would hope that eventually the Obscene Mirror or the Other Side of the Mirror or both paired together would get a release over here and get this movie a bit more attention because I think it's one that's kind of right now a little hidden, uh, a little hidden in his uh, his uh, his list of credits because I don't see much discussion of the film. I don't see a lot of talk well, about it. Well, it's just not available in English generally. Yeah. Um, that's a big problem. Uh, you, you asked me earlier for my top three, five, whatever, Franco films, and I would definitely include that one in the list. I think it's one of his very best works, and it's it was, when it, when it came out in, in France, and I, and I saw it, I thought you know, this is probably the last really top-rate Franco film we're going to see resurface, because looking over the list not much else pops out as being missing in action that's that significant. Um, well, there's a lot of his stuff out, actually. But I did find one other film um, that just blew me away when I saw it, and it's called La Casa de las Mujeres Perdidas, The House of Lost Women, uh, which was made in the, in the 1980s. Okay. And it's very comparable. You could, you could say that it's Franco's... It's his Pedro Almodovar movie. Really? Yeah. Um, and oddly enough, there is a, uh, a press release sort of piece of paper that I've seen uh, reproduced that credits the story to Jean-Claude Carrière, who was the, uh, the writer on The Diabolical Dr. Z and uh, Attack of the Robots, who was also Bunuel's uh, screenwriter for okay. the last period of his career. So that makes perfect sense, although Carrière's name does not appear on the film itself. So maybe he said, you can use this, just don't credit me, you know, because now he's a very famous uh, screenwriter and it may have adversely affected his career to be <laughs> having his work adapted down market. But it makes that kind of crazy, surrealist sense. And it's about, it's about the, uh, the menage, the home life of this reclusive actor who's played by Antonio uh, Mayans. Oh, who I love. Uh, yeah, yeah. He, he's fabulous. And uh, this is like one of his, his great parts. And How how hard is it to get to, to see a copy of this? Is it, has it had a real release? It's one of those torrent things. You know, you, okay. You can find it in, in the usual list of suspects. So we're talking a, it's been a, a rip from television. Essential. It's been... Uh, I would think. Just a TV rip of some sort? So. Okay. I think so. But it looked good, and, and the translation I thought was very good, and... And uh, it's just, it's shocking, and it's funny, and it's ultimately very moving. Um, it's, it's like a real serious movie. This is something that you could take out of the Franco context and, you know, not tell people who made it, you know, <laughs> and show it at a, at a film festival somewhere, and I think it would blow people away. Um, I, I've got to go back and revisit it just to refresh my memory about all the details, but... Did he sign his name to it, or did he yes. use a pseudonym? Yes, it, I, I believe it was his own name. Okay. 
Um, and it was after he had returned to Spain. So I think it was Jesus Franco. Okay. I think that it's the films of Franco that have that detached sense of uh, melancholy that are the most difficult for people who are uh, just trying to start watching his movies, which is why I have a tendency to try to point them toward... Um, why would that be, though? Because, although most people intellectually can understand the idea that with any movie, you're bringing something to every movie you watch. Mm. But in most cases, what you're bringing to a movie is just entertain me. The concept of, yeah. I'm here to be entertained. Entertain me. And there are a lot of movies, and often we, th- often we think of them as being more along the lines of the art house end of the, end of the spectrum, where you know walking in the door that you're going to have to bring a little bit to it. You're going to have to step up a little bit. Even if it's something as minor as going to see a, foreign, a, fo- a film in a foreign language and know that you're going to have to read subtitles, you're going to have to bring... This is going to be a bit more work on your part. You're going to have to step toward the film rather than just allow the film to come to you. And so I think that um, in a lot of cases... And some of this is due to the fact that he made so many different types of movies. With Franco, if your entry point is Awful Dr. Orloff or uh, Attack of the Robots or uh, Lucky the Inscrutable, which are just entertaining genre pictures. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I love, I love Lucky the Inscrutable. God, I love that movie. But those movies don't require what those movies that he made in the 70s that are this type of melancholy remembrance type of thing where you have got to kind of step toward it. You've got to lean toward the story a little bit and bring a bit more thought or a bit more nuance to how you approach the story being told to you because it's not being told to you necessarily in, um, I guess the word aggressive would be wrong, but it's not It's not pushing itself at you. It's trying to draw you toward it. Yeah. And that's a little bit more work. And if you're not in the mood for it, you should step away. Because you're not going to enjoy it, and you're going to have that reaction that I had for so long, which is, what the hell is this movie doing? Why is nothing happening? And you know, you feel like the, 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 the narrative doesn't yeah, exist. You're, you're going against the grain of it right? In, in that case. To me, I mean, it's, it's like, instead of, of going to a movie because you want to be entertained, you want that film to work for you, it seems that these these melancholy films, the the reveries uh, in his filmography, sort of propose like, you know, if you're feeling lonely, or if you're feeling apart from other people, that's a good excuse to look for the companionship of a movie that would share your sense of apartness and and melancholy and give you a place to sort of burn that out through some, uh, you know, process that the protagonist shares with you. The idea of commiserating with a film is almost alien to a lot of people, though. Mm -hmm. The idea of using... I think a lot of times we use entertainment, especially in our culture, Mm -hmm. as uh, a form of drug, a kind of a way of of elevating a mood rather than mirroring it. Just just one kind of drug, then. (laughs) Right, exactly. It's an uh, an upper, never a downer. Right. But that's uh, not necessarily a downer. It's just... uh, Maybe it's just more real. I mean, it, it, it just... Oh, it's much more real, yes. Yeah. These sad, these more uh, languidly paced stories mm-hmm. are much more a kind of... If they're, uh, if they're a medication, they're a leveling mm-hmm. medication. They're, uh, they're something that is trying to help you find a, 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 a straight line rather than highs and lows. Yeah. 
and it's trying to and it's finding the desire to seek out a piece of entertainment that is going to meet you at your level. No, you know yourself aware enough to know I I'm I'm right here emotionally. I'm on this on this level and I I should probably work my way through this naturally and this film may help or hurt but it's not going to push me in one direction or the other. It's going to meet me there. And I think that um, it's almost like uh, the way someone who's feeling that way might seek out a friend to discuss mm. that mindset, the, the the circumstances that brought them to that point in their life, mm. in the hopes of not necessarily having the friend have an answer or have a suggestion that will necessarily point them toward a better way of looking at it, mm. but that by simply getting it off your chest or sharing it, mm. therefore, in this case, sharing it with the film or the idea of recognizing those same emotions in someone else, this artist who made this piece of work that mirrors my emotional state, even if it just simply brings you to the point of, of recognizing that I'm not alone because someone else felt this way once. I think that that can be a positive thing. I don't see, I can't see how it could ever be a negative thing unless you just want it to be, unless you want it to to drag you down. If you want it to, to use it as a, a, a way to, um, to point to point toward how everybody feels like shit and we're all going to, to go down the drain and it's all terrible and, and it's this whirling mass of blackness and we're all going to be sucked down to oblivion. You're going to get that way whether you're watching a film anyway. And I almost think that if you're seeking something out that will mirror your state, you're already looking for help anyway. You're already, you're already looking for yeah. someone to or something to uh, mirror your, your mental state and therefore kind of level you off and put you back in the mindset that's going to allow you to return to a time or, or, or a state that isn't quite so, uh, I guess, low for lack of a better word. So. Well, well, first of all, I think what, what you're describing is a basic difference between uh, the American approach to, to movies and the European approach to yes. movies. Uh, because in the Franco films, you get, you get films that are meant to not just entertain, but, I'm, uh, but in a sense to, to fill your time. Uh, to inform your time, to to give you something to relate to in your time, rather than just talk down to you through entertainment or distract you and make you oblivious to your problems for ninety minutes. Um, so in, in Franco films, you can see uh, films that have a very literary tone, like Eugenie de Sade has a very literary tone, and uh, Nightmares Come at Night is kind of a poem. Exactly. It's yeah. almost it's almost music. Yeah. Uh, Nightmare comes at night. There's a there's a part of me that thinks that it would be that it would play beautifully, completely silent with a a wall to wall, carefully constructed score. Mm-hmm. I think it's I, I, I love that movie. It was one of the is one of those entry points of realizing that this is hitting me at just the right emotional level, and uh, I think I think it would work. I think it would work very well. Well, completely dialogue free. The likening to music is is an important point to make uh, because it's like you were saying, people will watch a film to be entertained, but not to sort of mirror their mood. But isn't mirroring our mood why we put on almost any record we ever play? Yes, yes. <laughs> there you go. So it's like he's he's just giving us a film for the same reason that you would want to put on, you know, like Sinatra torch songs or. You know, acid rock, or you know, whatever it was yep. that you wanted to support the mood you wanted, or the mood you wanted to get to. 
So I mean, the, yeah, there's a, there's a, just such a strong musical sensibility. It's impossible to talk about Franco's work really without dragging music into it all the time. Well, it's uh, it's always fun to note how often his film, how often any particular one of his films uh, defaults to a jazz club, mm-hmm. uh, with or without Franco on stage as part of the the ensemble, yeah. uh, is a, a good indicator of how often he wants you to consciously be aware that there is music playing. In other words, even if the music is something you're not paying attention to for whatever reason, although often I can't imagine how you could, how, how you could miss it, the, the, even when the, the music and the setting of that jazz club has nothing to do with the part of the narrative that we're currently involved in, he draws attention to it as if he wants you to be thinking about the music being played, there's a, a visual cue to make sure that you're aware music is being played, and you might and, and and you need to hear it. You need to be that needs to be part of what you're taking in. And uh, although it's easy to argue, music played in a movie is always going to be taken in, even if only even if only subliminally. Subliminally, it's almost as if he's wanting to underline it. Sometimes it may be uh, he's just wanting to underline it because he. You know, needs a cutaway shot or whatever it may be, but it's too frequent and in too many films for it to not be a conscious effort to draw attention to the fact that the music is something you should be noticing right now. Right, right now, you should be noticing it. And also, he'll he'll open a number of films with something that you take to be reality, and then he'll cut away to an audience watching and applauding yes. at the end of a performance. And I, I take that as a reminder that no matter how extreme and unpleasant the material may sometimes get, these are really people just putting on a show. You know, in the tradition of the French Grand Guignol, for example. Yeah. And that's something I've always expected from, uh, from European sensibilities more than American. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't really thought of it until right now in, in the context of Franco, but you're right. There are so many of his movies... That do begin with, uh, I guess the term could be a fake out, where you're you're thinking the actual narrative of the film has begun, but you're just being played to. You're you're being shown a a, a, a stage sex show or a or a, a, an acted an acted out uh, scene being played for a producer or whatever the narrative requires, and uh, I never really thought of it until now and in uh, Franco's films as it being a, uh, an attempt to demonstrate the curtain, to demonstrate that, hey, remember, this is all something we're showing you behind a curtain, and when that, you know, when the end comes, we're just drawing the curtain back. Remember, this is all, you know, you've seen a three-act something. illusion. Yeah, it's an illusion. We're playing here. This is a play. Yeah. And I was just thinking about what the American counterpoint to the Grand Guignol would be, because we have no tradition like that in our culture. So it's it's sort of alien to us, uh, other than horror movies, you know. Yeah. But in terms of of entertainment that was keyed toward episodes of torture, you know, imprisonment, uh, disfigurement, things like that, the only real parallel that we have, because our movies were never allowed to be that strong during that period, would be men's magazines. Yeah. You know, that post-war pulp fiction that they collected, you know, I was a prisoner, you know. <laughs> I was yes, I, I yeah, I was a I was a, a, a I was a 
a POW, a POW, and here's how I escaped. And, right, and weasels ripped my flesh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, um, but and he's made movies like that too. So he he entered into that too, like with Elsa, uh, Ilsa the, uh, the the Mad Butcher. You know? Oh yeah, 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 definitely. Um, well, also in that pulpy men's adventure stuff, you have, th- I mean, the you know, like things like Girl from Rio or, uh, um, oh darn, the, uh, the, uh, the 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 Fu Manchu movies that he right. made. The Sumeru. I mean, yeah, the Sumeru, exactly. Which I, I loved. Uh, I loved Sumeru. I thought that was wonderful. But the the those those pulpy, uh, almost cartoonish elements that he loves to play with. There, he he has a flair for them. Mm-hmm. And it comes from uh, it comes from a real understanding of what about them appeals to someone who likes those types of stories because they clearly appeal to him. Mm-hmm. And um, I'll say I was really surprised when I finally was able to perceive uh, his sense of humor in a lot of movies, mm-hmm. which and, is often covered up. We should say by by the English dubbing. That's true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he made a, he made a few outright comedies. Uh, Robinson Crusoe on and his women, uh, which is kind of a take on Rob, you know, uh, which is or it's Mr. Robinson and his women, which is just a take off off, off yeah, Robinson Crusoe. Robinson's Wild Slaves, I think, was the English yeah. title. And then uh, Lucky the Inscrutable, which is an obvious comedy. It's a it's a spy spoof, but it's very yeah. funny and very and honestly very witty. Even in um, if I'm remembering the English dub, if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, now I can't remember if I watched it in English or with uh, subtitles. I it's all it's it they all mix together in yeah. my head as far as how I actually I took the dialogue. There was an English version that, that floated around. But the uh, the the sense of humor he displays there is obvious. But there's a lot of humor in often you know obviously dark humor in his other films as well. Even if it's just uh, subtle little things, and uh, it seems like he. It seems like he really let that darker humor play a bit more when he was comfortable, more, more when he was more comfortable with certain actors. And so those actors that he worked with more frequently, like Howard Vernon and Lena Romay and and uh, Louis Barteau, Barteau or Barteau? Oh, Barbu. Barbu. I'm sorry. Barbeau. Uh, you you can see him. He can see that the, the, these are people who, when they're playing in certain things in certain ways. They're they're in on the the darker the dark humorous aspect of some of the things that they're doing, mm-hmm. and um, that's that's a lot of fun. There's there's a lot of fun to be had, say, in Erotic Rites of Frankenstein, watching uh, Howard Vernon, um, um, that never never breaking character, but playing it with that bizarre at times playing it with a very bizarre twinkle that uh, doesn't that doesn't. Say I'm above this, but but says that uh, this is a this is a dark this is a dark little little joke I'm playing on some on these characters that I'm interacting with. They're these mean spirited, these mean spirited things. Am I blanking out, or what did Howard Vernon play? Uh, Cagliostro. Oh, that's right, that's right. Yeah, because uh, I was thinking of that little uh, performance of Dracula as he, it, it, that he that he does in that, and also Daughter of Dracula. You know. And in Daughter of Dracula, he basically just pops out of the coffin twice. I mean, his, his he was top-lined, and his name was in a box. You know, the only time in history, I think, when an actor has appeared in a box only in, in his scenes in the movie, and then his name he is in a, in a box, box on the poster. 
Um, <laughs> I like that. But I, I think they could have wrapped his entire performance in about 15 minutes and Probably. just you know, dropped it into that picture. And it could have been shot while he was making a second film for, for Franco. Who knows? The, the odd thing about it, it, it was just for that film, actually, because I, I researched that for a commentary. Really? Um, and he, he worked on the film as a stills photographer under his own name, Mario Leper. But, uh, yeah, he, he just did that little uh, scene for the picture. <laughs> I think I think maybe they were shooting in the same location as Virgin Among the Living Dead. Okay. So it's possible that they shot some of the material in that film earlier on when some of the collected cast members were were together. That's you know, one of the amazing things. I mean, you look through these through these films and if you compare the casts when you find two films that share a cast and you look at the scenery and, and you try to figure out, you know, were these two movies, even though they were shot, even though they were released like maybe two or three years apart, were they actually shot at the same time? It's like for, for a long time, uh, people were saying that uh, Lena Romay's footage in uh, Dracula versus Dracula Prisoner of Frankenstein, there's this gypsy footage that she's, yes. that she's in. No, it's it. That's in the erotic rites of Frankenstein. It's in an alternate cut of erotic yes, rites of Frankenstein. People were saying that was her first uh, scene, but actually, if you look at where she is and you look at how she's dressed and how her hair is and everything, she shot it around the same time as she did Female Vampire. Huh. Uh, it's in the same the same woods. Those were a year. Well, at, at, at least, least a year. about a year apart. Yeah. But, I mean, he was shooting like twelve films at a time. You know, <laughs> Which is still. Things. Which still stuns me when you when you when you look at the number of films. You have been chosen to take part in a great mission as the instruments of my destiny. When my father gives an order, you will obey or die. Centuries ago, an ancient race conquered this continent. Now their secrets are mine. And with this knowledge, I shall master the world. Power of ancient poison transmit to this girl so that she will destroy the enemies in our path. Strike, Nayland Smith. A most persistent man. He must be eliminated. For heaven's sake, Petrie, go after the hunt for a lost civilization brings Assistant Commissioner Nayland Smith's agents into Fu Manchu's secret territory. Nayland Smith has many spies. Lopez might be one of them. Christopher Lee. You will seek out my enemies and you will destroy them. Sai Chin. They tell me you can dance. Tonight, you will dance for the last time. Richard Green. I can't see. I'm blind. Maria Rom. Shirley Eaton. Howard Marion Crawford. Have you ever heard of the kiss of death? No. Somehow, the poison was transmitted. And after a few days, the victim died, but first, he went blind. Within a few seconds of receiving the kiss of death, Fu Manchu is in that region of South America, protected on one side by the Andes, 
and on the other by the Matto Grosso. Fu Manchu is there, of that I'm certain. He found the poison. Only he may know the antidote. The blood of Fu Manchu, and the only man who can save Nayland Smith from an ancient and deadly poison is Dr. Fu Manchu, his greatest enemy. Fu Manchu movies did he direct? Were there three? Let's see. There was uh, Castle and Blood. Just those two, I think. Then, right? I think. I think it may have been just the two. Okay. What do you think of them? Oh, there was also uh, Kiss, Kiss and Kill. But but see, there's the profusion of different titles for these films. I, I get know. Lost. That's right. Wait a there minute. There was Kiss that and three. Kill. Kiss and Kill was the original theatrical title of the first one but there's also it's also called Fu Manchu and the Kiss of Death and uh, was it Curse of Fu Manchu I can't remember I get them all mixed up yeah and I only I can only remember that the ones he didn't direct the first was of those Harry Harry Allen Towers produced uh, Fu Manchu films the first was the face of Fu Manchu right and then the uh, Brides Brides okay and then there was Vengeance and then and then came Kiss and Kill, uh, as it was called. And then yeah. Blood. Blood. And, and then Castle of Fu right. Manchu was the final. Right, which has all that stock footage from A Night to Remember with the tan- Titanic sinking. <laughs> I know, <laughs> I know. Well, what do you, what do you think of, uh, first of all, that run of Fu Manchu films and specifically Franco's? Because uh, I, I don't see a lot of discussion about them, even though they're, they're fairly easy to come by. They're, e- they're some of his easier ones to see from the 60s. Well, the the first one, uh, which uh, Don Sharp directed, yeah, and I, did he also direct the second one? I think I he, think he, he did the first it. two, if okay. memory serves. Yeah, well, the first one is quite good. The first one is quite good and uh, has a good tone. I mean, I've I've read about uh, four or five of of the Romer novels, and the tone that I remember from those books is well mirrored in in that film. And I, I like the way that it also combined uh, some of the best uh, British talent from that period with talent from West Germany, you know, who were experienced in making the Krimi films for for Rialto. So you have Joachim Fuchsberger and Eddie Arendt, you know. Oh yeah, that's uh, right. I forgot. Ed, I forgot Eddie Arendt was in that. Yeah. It's always, he's always a he's even even when he's playing those jokey characters in the the Krimis, he's always a he's always a welcome addition so mm-hmm. i always like seeing him i yeah. forgot he was in some of those yeah so yeah there was you know uh, german money tied up in in those productions uh brides of, of fu manchu i remember liking it's been a long time since i've seen it not not as accomplished as the first one because it had less period detail yeah that was it, one of the it, nice it, things about it the seemed first a little one. rushed if my memory serves mm-hmm. on that one it seemed a bit more as if uh, they were pressed for time, if not necessarily budget. I don't know. But it had this uh, wonderful South African actress, Carol Gray, who I remember uh, from Curse of the Fly. You know, at the beginning of Curse of the Fly, and the oh, credits, yeah. the window explodes, and then you see this beautiful brunette step out in her underwear yeah. and, and run off into the night. That's her. It's a okay. very arresting opening, but she plays the heroine in uh, Brides of Fu Manchu, so okay. Okay. I liked it for 
for her presence as well. Um, and, and Vengeance, I don't remember very clearly, except that it had some really impressive location shooting. Uh, they actually went places and shot things in exotic locations. I can't remember if I don't. I'm not sure I've seen Vengeance of Fu Manchu. Mm-hmm. I really don't. That was Jeremy Summers, who had a background in uh, shooting sh- episodes of uh, The Saint, for example, you know, like British television. Okay. But as you get into Franco's uh, films, the, the first one, uh, which I think is largely set in South America, you've got uh, what is uh, Ricardo Palacios uh, playing a sort of Pancho Villa, you know, revolutionary who's trying to take over a town. And it's like two. Fu Manchu was against this, you know, obese bandito, you know, vying for, for triumph over the forces of good in, in this South American area, and uh, that dilutes the film for me. Okay. Although there are a couple of different versions of that film floating around, and some have a little more more nudity or near nudity in it. I remember there's a scene where a woman appears during one of his big, you know, revolutionary shootout revels. You know, this woman appears and does a dance. And it was shot two different ways. One way, she's wearing an opaque gown, or else the screen is Vaselined so that you can't see anything. <laughs> and then there's the other version where she's wearing a transparent gown. But I don't, I don't think either one made the movie significantly better. I mean, it was just sort of flat. Um, the uh, even if she were not, I had to make the joke. Oh. It's a bad joke. I'm um, sorry. But the uh, the one that was called uh, Blood of Fu Manchu is is much more like a comic book. It has very garish color lighting. Yeah, and it's kind of it's it. I kind of get a kick out of it. It's it's actually kind of fun in a very pulpish way. I don't think that it necessarily it doesn't tell a very Sax Romerish tale, if memory serves. <laughs> they threw all the stories. It's, it's gone really by then. <laughs> But I, because I've I've enjoyed the Sax Romer Fu Manchu stuff I've read too. But um, by the time you get to those those last three, especially, there's not a lot left there other than kind of the 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 outline of the character and maybe the tone mm-hmm. at times. Although, it, like you say, with blood, it really is more comic book than pulp. I think. Well, they also become Fu Manchu and his daughter uh, become sort of like wax figures. In Franco's films, they just sort of stand, stand in around. a setting and, uh, you know, give people orders. And then the people, the actors they could actually afford for more than one day, you know, carry the plot forward. <laughs> so you get Maria Rome, who's sort of part of the deal, the yeah. package deal. Which is and not, that's, that's fine to have her on screen, uh, that doesn't bother me. She's a fine actress. She's a really she's, fine And actress. she's also very, very easy on the eyes. Yes. Yes. But that it's never more apparent that they only had Christopher Lee, especially for a few days. Mm-hmm. It, it's never more apparent than in Castle, yeah. which is easily the worst of those that I've seen. Even yeah. if I haven't seen Vengeance, I doubt it could be any worse than Castle because my memory of it is just hysterical in that idea that you were just putting forth about just standing around, just standing around and ordering people to go actually do things, yeah. which is it's it's clear there's this long shot that it's clear that Lee is standing on if not a couple of soapboxes, at least, you know, shoes that are a good foot (laughs) taller than they should be, therefore making the already tall Christopher Lee loom over everything in sight, except it's undermined by the fact that it's a long shot that Franco then zooms back from, and it's clear that Lee cannot move. Mm -hmm. 
and he's ordering and pointing for all his minions to to move forward, you know, to run forward to attack whoever the camera is representing at that point in time. But it's also clear Lee cannot move. Yeah. He's 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 as stock still as a statue. He cannot move, the, and the, it's just weird. The actress who played his daughter Sai Chin. Uh, used to joke because she was so tiny compared to him. They used to joke on the set about what you know her mother must have been. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean they're they're by far not not his best movies, and I think they're they're some of his most visible movies you know, to an American audience, and they're yeah. they're one of the reasons why his work doesn't have a better reputation here. Yeah, I mean it's Castle of Fu Manchu got the Mystery Science Theater treatment and uh, I had the uh, that's how I first saw Castle of Fu Manchu and then years later when I was able to watch the film and I thought oh well you know lots of films that they do are actually good films taken out you know that that they're just playing with let's see what happens when you just watch Castle of Fu Manchu and about halfway through I was like oh my god oh my god no nothing can save this film nothing nothing Mm -hmm. nothing and uh, it's Franco probably felt the same way yeah Castle came near the end of his tenure, I think, with with Harry Allen Towers, and uh, Kiss and Kill was one of the first, if not the first, film that he made with Towers. I know that he he filled in as a director on another Jeremy Summers project that was called The Face of Eve, or just Eve. Okay. Uh, and did some shooting in a in a jungle, and then Franco uh, did the Fu Manchu film. So he was subservient to Harry Allen Towers and what he wrote. I mean, unlike Franco's best work, all of the Towers stuff was sort of work for hire because he always worked from Towers' scripts that he signed uh, Peter Welbeck, but Towers wrote all of these things. And so Franco had very little room to move around in. He was basically working for the money and the exposure. Was The Bloody Judge one of the Harry Allen Towers films? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That was uh, probably the second biggest production after Justine, which was uh, supposedly Franco's only million dollar budget in his career. Wow, I did not know that uh, he had a million for that film. Yeah, that's the rumor anyway. Huh. That's what he put forward. Not not that Jess was the most reliable witness to his own <laughs> career. That's a, a lesson that he learned from his idol, Orson Welles, yeah. you know, who uh, was similarly full of hooey in his interviews. <laughs> <laughs> and those and those stories with Wells did grow in uh, in magnitude over time. Yeah. The, the details got uh, sharper and uh, stranger and smoother in certain instances. Too. I'm, re- I'm reading uh, right now. I'm reading Simon Callow's third volume in his Orson Welles uh, biography, which is called One Man Band. And uh, there's a part in there where it, it told me something about Orson Welles that I'd never heard before. But apparently, he claimed that in his younger days. He had written a series of uh, dime novel westerns for a Spanish publishing house. <laughs> he claimed to have written all these novels that came out from the Spanish publishing house, like little adventure stories and western novels and things. And Franco made the exact damn same claim. <laughs> I was going to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I remember something about Franco, and because there was that... He claimed um, that The Awful Dr. Orloff was based on a novel by David Kuhn. You know, right, the whole David Kuhn thing, which right. is a, which is a fake name to begin with. There is no David Kuhn. Right. Oh my goodness! I had no idea. Yeah, Although you're right. there's also a David Coon Jr., you know, who writes like the the on-screen narration at the beginning of one of the Monster Rally films. Oh you know, goodness. like he's some authority on the occult. <laughs> <laughs> 
So that's the other thing about Franco. I mean, he he just wants you to have a good laugh at his movies too. You know, he doesn't want you to take them too seriously, really. Although, he, although they it, can be. The the fascinating thing for me about Franco is that once um, once the door opened for me on some of the more difficult, what I originally thought of as difficult films, mm-hmm. um, that door swung wide, and not just because. Uh, suddenly I have a lot more films that I'm going to uh, be interested in looking at, but because there are so many variations on those films. You you said that uh, there's possibly 20 to 25 movies that he shot you know, alternate footage for and alternate versions of. That's my guess. Yeah. That it, it would, um, it, it, he might have done you know, 15. It's, it's hard to tell because you get into such minutia when you're determining this. I mean... Is it really something that's just been changed, or was it doctored by other hands outside his reach or even his knowledge? And, th- and that I've read, I can't remember where, some, somewhere talking about how uh, often, uh, in some instances, he would turn the movie over and wouldn't even have a hand in providing notes for, for editing. the editing. Yeah, so. right. yeah. Gerard Kikwan uh, edited a number of the films from like the 73, 74 period. Um, working from from his notes and and again this is something that he picked up from Wells I mean Wells basically had uh, he uh, yeah Wells uh, you know left the cutting of the Magnificent Ambersons to uh, Robert Wise at RKO and he when he went that. to South America yeah. to do another project and then he left uh, Macbeth in, in the hands of an editor and uh, Othello was like cut together by somebody else uh, without his his constant presence and supervision. It's not that he, he was, his energy was too outgoing to be contained by something that required him to sit in a chair and focus, you know. So he could do notes in a sort of outgoing, forward energy. Uh, or probably, dic- probably dictate those notes to someone. Yeah. If, yeah. if, if, the, the, <laughs> just the, shout, get it done. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this needs to be in this place. This needs to be there. Music needs to be layered under this scene in this fashion. I want this piece there, and that's that's how I picture Wells issuing his notes on the on the edit of the film. So, I wanted to thank you. I, I, when I asked you to uh, to sit down and talk about Franco, I didn't think that it would be uh, something that would be like pulling teeth, and it certainly isn't. <laughs> uh, whenever we end up talking about Franco, it, it happens it happens more it happens fairly often, but uh, we rarely record it. I, I wanted to make sure we did, and I thought that uh, since you have recently been involved in recording uh, commentary tracks for a few of his films that surely some of this stuff would be uh, near the you know be bubbled toward the top of your uh, your consciousness and some of these ideas would be floating around there just ready to be connected and, and thrown out there um, I, will, I do want to say I know that uh, you uh, you picked up a, you picked up a rondo again this year for uh, one of your commentaries didn't you well on on the ballot it was for two commentaries it was for uh, Black Sabbath for, for Kino and yeah. Blood and Black Lace, another Mario Bava film for Arrow. I don't know how it was narrowed down to those two. I mean, I, I did like, you know, eight or nine. <laughs> well, that's just it. I wanted that to point year. I wanted to point out that I did a I did a write-in vote for your uh, commentary for The Erotic Rites of Frankenstein because I went back through that movie uh, a completely separate time after I watched the film, then listened to your commentary track, and I enjoyed the commentary track so much, I went back through the commentary track and then almost went all the way through the film a fourth time <laughs> just without the commentary track just to absorb it again. 
And uh, I could I could uh, pat myself on the back and say this is because I was I was writing a review of the film. But to be honest, I just got wrapped up and listening to your commentary track made me want to go back and pa- make another pass through the movie just to make sure that I was absorbing everything that you were laying out there because I always love your commentary tracks. They're they're informative, they're entertaining, and they always bring something to the table almost every five minutes that I'm not expecting. I never find myself bored. I never find that uh, you, you, you there's a trap that a lot of commentators fall into that you do not, which I appreciate, which is the, the, the trap of regurgitating... Uh, resume information about an actor uh, you're always relating it to what's on screen you're always relating it to someone else that they're in this film with and uh, just the, the 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 joy of a film that I was almost discovering again for the first time and having you kind of underline and emphasize yeah your reactions your reactions are valid man your reactions are valid your reaction this time is way better than your reaction 10 15 years ago that was a lot of fun so uh, although my 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 vote may not have counted <laughs> trust me it was done I in all any, love any vote cast for me i hope would would be <laughs> Be thrown on the to my favor. Move it over there. Move but, it over. Uh, no, the, the commentaries are great fun to do, and uh, they're a process of discovery for me. I mean, what I get uh, when you hear a commentary, what I say is not something that I've always known. You know, it's something that I've discovered as I've gone through the film shot by shot, you know, especially like narrowing down locations of where things were shot, for example, things like that. So it's it's always a great... I can give you my best work when I'm discovering something for myself at the same time, basically. Well, I just want to take the opportunity, as so many other people don't get the opportunity, to say thank you for the work on the commentaries. Thank you. You're welcome. And thank you for sitting down and talking to me tonight. (laughs) Thank you for having me. (laughs) All right, man. We will talk to you again soon. Thanks. All right.
You know, I read in Video Watchdog that Jeffrey Dennis completely rewrote Jane Mann's original script. She was oh, really yeah. mad about it, too. Oh, yeah, I read that, too. You know, when I read in Starlog that Robert A. Terry had to be brought in to smooth things over, it was it was really a mess, man. Uh, did you read in Fangoria about how Richard Courier and Morton Tuber were at each other's throats? Yeah, they said the, oh, the, the whole shoot was a big ordeal, and the three days were absolute hell of the whole yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, did you oh, read in Gorzon really? about the torrid love affair between Betty Sinclair and Paul Grantz? Oh, no. Why would the love affair be in Gorzone? Have you seen Betty? You know, I read in Newsweek that Henry Vars really resented Mitchell Tier supervising his music. You read Newsweek? What a loser. Can't believe it. The fanzine sketch, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much.